Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Swither, and I'm joined as always by my best friend Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Brutus? Yeah, excited to be here. I'd to march, oh, asshole. <laughs> that's a <laughs> that's a callback to our last episode in which we broke down the 2020-2021 Oscar nominations. And at the end of that episode, we teased this episode that we are doing now, which is covering a film that did not earn a single Oscar nomination. That is Sam Levinson's Malcolm and Marie. And this is this is fun. We've never done this. We've never talked in depth about such a current movie on this podcast. This flick was just released on Netflix a few weeks ago, and we certainly haven't discussed a new movie that is this controversial while it is in the midst of its own controversy. So, but the reason we're talking about this movie is that is because we both really liked it and not to, you know, put words in your mouth, but I, I did not anticipate that. And I don't think you did either. So this is just going to be a lot of fun to dive into. Yeah. I thought this movie was going to suck. I know I was trying to be nice about it, but that is absolutely what you thought. You thought it was going to be awful. (laughs) And, you know, you get all of these on the internet, you get all of these people that, you know, everyone talks a huge game before something comes out. Like as if they know what it is, as if they've seen it, as if they understand. And so <laughs> there's all this shit. And then here I am and be like, what the fuck is this? This is this is this is just not going to be good. And I had to put my own foot in my mouth because um, I can't think of a movie that I have enjoyed more in a long time. Yeah. In terms of like what this movie does, like and how it's done. You do not see movies like this anymore. Yeah, I have that written actually, I think a few times in my notes. It's because the conceit of this movie is incredibly simple, almost to the point where it's jarring. How in the world am I to believe that they're going to be able to pull this off reasonably? Because the movie is just this. Malcolm and Marie are a couple who have been dating for about five years. They arrive home late one evening. It's a nice rental near Malibu. They arrive home one evening following the premiere of Malcolm's first feature film. He's a director. And things go awry very quickly and pretty much stay that way for the remaining hour and 45 minutes. And what happens in that time is one of the great all-time movie arguments. And I genuinely knew nothing about this movie when I sat down to watch it. I knew it, it had caused a little controversy. The only thing I had heard that was controversial was that there were some things in the movie that film critics specifically didn't like, and they were trashing those aspects of the film a little bit. But again, so shortly after it started, and he starts going on his rant about how the movie premiere went, and you get, okay, this guy's a film director. I really got nervous because it is hard, especially now, to pull off a movie about movies or about filmmakers without immediately drawing criticism. It's, you know, writers are allowed to write about writers, but filmmakers talking about filmmakers is it's a really tricky rope yeah and it's certainly it leans into that argument like a huge part of this movie is art versus criticism Mm -hmm. and to immediately start with the monologue that he begins with i mean i love it because i think this is like important shit i this is why i love the controversy i don't understand the controversy to be honest because I mean, in my opinion, if if a movie makes you angry or makes you upset, then it's doing something right. Mm-hmm. And so for a movie to unapologetically, in just this particular context, just talking about art and criticism, for it to 
commit to its point of view and it's what should be happening. That was really well said. And you also alluded to the fact that we're just talking talking about art versus criticism because on top of all that, this movie absolutely goes for it on so many different subjects. We're talking, it loudly discusses race, gender roles, the ignorance of some film critics, perhaps, uh, drug addiction. There's nothing off limits here. And frankly, as you said earlier, they just don't really make movies like this anymore. And just to kind of slow it down and back up, this movie really is uncompromising in a lot of ways. The story, which we're going to dive into, is unflinching. And the movie itself, it just starts two people. There are two speaking roles. It was shot on black and white 35 millimeter film. So you're already alienating some of your audience. (laughs) It's grainy. There are long musical interludes of people just thinking or staring off, which we don't really get as we further progress with streaming movies. This is it's a very dangerous film, quote unquote, and I'm here for it. And I really thought this movie succeeded on every level. So I kind of want to start with one of the broadest questions, which is, is this one of the all time great movie arguments? We have talked about movie arguments on this podcast. Usually they are just one scene. This is the entire movie, you know, before midnight has a really long extended argument that goes that extends into different settings. But I mean, obviously, I think, yes, it's one of the all time great ones. But just let's start there. How did you feel about this? pulling off for an hour and 45 minutes, pulling off a seamless argument. It's astounding. I couldn't believe that it was an argument that lasted for an entire length of a movie and one that I never felt got stale. And that's very hard to do. I was thinking a lot about Before Midnight because that probably was the closest one that I could compare it to Mm -hmm. up until because, yeah, that's like a 30-minute um scene that does what arguments do it goes on the roller coaster so now you're talking about this one that just does it from start to finish there's Cassavetti's stuff going on in here uh, in terms of the way that humans deal with one another the behavior of it all what other movie does it for this long and this well I mean it's tough there are a few up there like scenes from a marriage yeah. is a good one but they're they're rarely this volatile that movie gets really rough but their volatility between zendaya and john david washington who are playing the leads here is just maintained throughout and this is not an easy movie to pull off both in shooting we're going to get into how it was shot and everything like that but you know when we talk about movie arguments we've mentioned this before a lot of movie arguments even ones that are well regarded they imagine them kind of like a roller coaster where they go up steadily and there's bickering and then someone makes a really big point and there's an explosion and then as it's cascading downhill usually just cut and the scene is done so that's it if you go back and watch a lot of movie arguments when someone makes a really good point and it's like that's the point the scene just cuts and you're on to the next day or the next month or wherever and the implication of that editing cut is that person just made that point so now that's probably what both those characters are doing that's what they're believing This movie, when you're watching Malcolm Marie, has so many opportunities for that, bam, that line is just thrown down. Boom, I made the point. I won, quote unquote. But then you have to sit with it, just like you do in real life. And it's really uncomfortable sometimes. But I was leaning closer to the TV like, this is so compelling to me that we're sitting in these silences. But then 
the most engaging aspect of this film for me is as they were arguing, they were getting so fucking nasty with each other that I, I was thinking, I was trying to think like a chess player and going, how in the hell is a person going to be able to respond to this? Like they are being gutted and this person is saying such mean shit. Do they possibly have any dirt on them that's that they can come back with? And then they do. And they do that like four times in the movie. And it's really cool. It's a very, very honest and real showcase of a relationship argument. The breaks that this movie has that the characters lead to me is so interesting because after a certain piece of an argument, there's a break and you see Mm -hmm. a person's thought, something changes and that's how it happens. And like, it's an uncomfortable hour, two hours to sit through, but I loved it because I was like, this is fucking life. This is, this is a fucking human experience. Absolutely. And I'm, I just love studying psychology for fun. I love trying to think about why people make the decisions they do. Watching the film the first time, you know, they walk, they come home and he is very excited. He's elated, maybe a little drunk. She is a little defeated, not saying much, making him macaroni and cheese. And it basically comes out that she initially is upset that he did not thank her during while he was introducing the movie. He didn't say, you know... Thank you so much to my love, Marie, whatever. And this is especially a little more troubling because the film he's just made is about a woman that is apparently based on Marie. So she is taking a lot of issue with all of this. So that's where the argument starts. But that is not really what they're fighting about. They're fighting about way, way, way more than that. And I just love that because that it, that's how arguments can start. It was so realistic to me. And those dips you're talking about, those breaks... That does happen, and there's some really kind of key moments in here that movie characters aren't really allowed to get away with a lot. Like, she wasn't mad. She said she wasn't mad, and he goes, I thought you weren't mad anymore. She takes that long beat and goes, I changed my mind. Yeah. And his reaction, you know, it's kind of a fair one. He's like, wait, you're allowed to do that? And yeah, like, people change their mind, dude. Sorry. And now it's 1 a.m., and you're stuck here, and that's, like, just what's going on. And in the breaks, what's always interesting to me, because I was really paying attention. I've seen it three times now, and I was really paying attention going, what does set her off? And in the beginning, it's usually a mention of, you know, you're not in film. So like, you, and then of course that's going to set her off because she wants me in, maybe she wants me in film, but you didn't give her the opportunity to. And I just loved watching those little triggers of what is riling her up. And then furthermore, I loved thinking about when is she going to make the decision to pop off? You can see all of that playing out on them. And we'll talk about the actors specifically in a second. You can just see that conflict playing out over them all the time. And I love that. Generally, I think it's really hard to pull an argument, a good argument off. I was saying earlier that a lot of arguments are like a roller coaster. I think a more accurate representation of one is more like a slope. Like you're going up and then you're going down. You're going up and like you're fighting. Then you're kind of making up. Then you're fighting and making up. Sustaining it for this long is an incredible feat. And I think... I'm going to be watching this one very often, kind of like marveling at it and picking it apart. Yeah, um, I've seen it twice now. And in both times watching it, and this is what I love about movies like this, is I think this happens in Cassavetti's movies, uh, Blue Valentine, the Before Trilogy. Mm -hmm. You can watch these movies and have a very different opinion of where these people are coming from each time you watch it. First time I watched it, 
I really felt him. I really understood him. I, I Maybe that's a part of me that imagined myself as a man being a filmmaker in a conversation like this. There, there was a lot for me personally to relate to. And then this time around, um, I thought he was a complete idiot, mm-hmm. a, a buffoon. Like He handled everything wrong. <laughs> and um, I mean, and the thing is, is like, there's no right or wrong answer to this. Like, there's no way that like we could have a conversation and be like, no, no, he's right about this. He's wrong about this. It's life isn't like that. People aren't like that. So the the men and women aspect of this is so well done. I, I think that's really good distinction to make that I, I'm certainly not declaring a winner of their fight or even the little no. the battles within their war, nor are you. And that's what that's one of the reasons why I love that this was shot in black and white, because this movie is all about the gray of a relationship. And that, yeah, if you know, that's really what you're looking at when you're looking at black and white, like a series of grays. And but we've gone long enough without talking about the people behind the movie specifically. I kind of want to start with the writer-director, Sam Levinson. I want to give him some quick credit because this is the showrunner slash creator of Euphoria on HBO, which is a tremendously successful and popular show. It enjoyed its first season, and then it was in the middle of prepping its second season and had to shut down because of COVID lockdown. And that's where the idea for Malcolm and Marie came from. Levinson and Zendaya wanted to keep working together. How the hell do you make a feature film in lockdown? They figured out how to do it. It was really cool. They had a a very small cast and crew. I think 12 people total were the amount that were allowed to be on set. Sam Levinson is the son of Oscar winning director Barry Levinson, who made, I mean, good God, we just talked about Diner recently. Good Morning Vietnam, Rain Man, Sleepers, Wag the Dog. And Sam is his father's son because I, I really dug Sam's first movie, Another Happy Day. It was this tiny indie from 2011 that very few people saw, but it has some A-listers in it. It's just, it's a good little movie. His second feature was Assassination Nation. That was apparently the movie premiere where Sam forgot to thank his partner Uh-oh. and they resolved it amicably. It didn't lead to this huge blowout, but he just accidentally forgot. And I think that was some of the starting inspiration for Malcolm and Marie, which I love. Yeah, Sam Levinson, you know, he creates Euphoria. He helped produce Pieces of a Woman, which I didn't know until researching this episode today, so that makes me love him even more. (laughs) And it's going to be crazy for him when Euphoria starts back up. But yeah, that's the man responsible for this film in part because it seems like he is very eager to share credit with Zendaya and John David Washington. I mean, they're both credited as PGA producers on the film. Like that's, that's a really big deal and not easy to get. So the biggest criticism to this film, and I don't know if I'm an authority to talk about this. I'm probably not, is that he is the sole credited writer on the film. They're talking about a lot of serious race issues. You know, he's a white guy. They're talking about race issues, gender issues. So was was he the correct person to author this? And to me, I the whole time I was watching this, I saw this as one giant three-way collaboration between the three of them. Very much how Ethan Hawke, Julie Debley, and Langladder write those scripts together. So that's just how it felt for me. But yeah, I just wanted to put Sam Levinson in your ear. I know I was texting you about him a little earlier, but I think that's cool. He's it can be a tough road to hoe to not to live in the shadow of such a monumental filmmaker. You have to step out from the inherent nepotism involved in that mm-hmm. and try to make it on your own. And I think he's doing that. Yeah. And speaking to that controversy, do you think for a single second 
that actors like Zendaya or John David Washington, who have PGA credit on this, are going to let anything fly that they don't believe in Correct. in a passion project like this to to think that they do not have input or do not have collaboration involved with this director writer that's asinine yeah and it's very i don't know i would i would imagine kind of disrespectful to everyone who was involved because of such a small crew everyone's putting everything into making this whole entire thing so they're all there's one vision that everyone sees and if it's not approved by the producers and stars they're not going to do it they're not going to let it happen so it's like there's also a giant part of it is like why do you care that's a great question it's a truly great question are you having an issue with that or are you having issue with some of the questions that it's raising and that's what I think is so great about this movie is because nothing's ever answered. Mm-hmm. Nothing this whole entire time between the argument between men and women, art and criticism, race, none of it is answered. It's all just being expressed. And it's done in beautiful ways. It's done in ugly ways. It's done in messy ways. And I just don't think a lot of people want to deal with it. They don't want to deal with the mess. Right. It It is messy. And it's I think it could be tough for some people, myself included. I don't always want to watch movies that open all these doors and don't close them. Mm-hmm. We are very used to movies asking questions and answering them for us. And we're like, cool. Now we get to leave the theater and just kind of go on with our day. Some do pressure you a little bit more and that can make people uncomfortable. I get it. But yes, this was it was absolutely a passion project that they all had their hands in. And I'm going to give a few examples of that that I discovered in my research. Malcolm, he arrived at that name because that is John David Washington's brother's name. And he got that name because he was named after one of his father's most famous roles, Malcolm X. (laughs) John David Washington is Denzel Washington's son. So that's where Malcolm comes from. Marie is Zendaya's middle name, even though it's spelled differently. Their hands were all over this movie. They're So there may only be one credited screenwriter, but the actors were in charge of their hair, makeup, costumes, including that dress. So like I said, I think this is, it was born from all of them. They should all share the credit of it. And look, it's one of the reasons I love this film so much is because it's so, it brings up so many damn messy topics. That's why I loved it. I like challenging art. Not, not every, we talk about this a lot. Not everything we watch has to be this complex, messy difficult thing to stomach like we like escapist entertainment too but Mm -hmm. this was one for a modern movie that netflix acquired like i just thought it was i see malcolm and marie just a few weeks after seeing pieces of a woman on the same streaming platform and both of these are some of the best movies that i've ever seen on stream you know that aired on a streaming platform first so zendaya is someone incredibly popular child disney star that I, I was not aware of any of that. The first time I saw her, she was in a Spider-Man movie. And I remember noticing her and being like, hmm, she has a general just presence about her. She's just playing a high school kid that I, I went, that I don't know who that is, but that is that either is someone famous that I'm just too old to know about or that's someone that's going to be really famous. Then Euphoria comes out and that was a show that I was a little critical on. Um, not because of her. She's incredible. I mean, she won a damn Emmy for it, a lead actress Emmy for that role. And I went back and rewatched that whole show after I learned that Sam Levinson based 
a lot of it on his own experiences as a teenager. I did not realize that. And I have a newfound appreciation for the show, but her work in that is incredible. So I, I was like, all right, like I'm here for it. Let me see what happens. She shows up in this and I saw her. This woman is 24 years old right now. And this is a hell of a powerhouse performance. I'm just, I'm so excited to see where her career goes. It seems like she has any number of options. She's in the MCU universe. She's plays a, a teenage drug addict on an HBO show, and she can be this incredible lead actress in major streaming platform movies. It's great. I'm, I I love Zendaya. I'm, I can't wait to see what she does. Yeah, I've never seen a single thing she's done until this movie, so I really didn't know anything about her. And from the second she walks in the door wearing that dress, but the way she's walking, the way she's carrying herself, the emotional life that she had just walking into the house, I was like, there is something going on. And it was compelling and it was captivating. And she carries that throughout the whole entire movie. Like you can just tell like she's a star, Mm -hmm. but she carries herself with such grace and maturity in this character, but then also immaturity. And I mean, that's what I love so much about it is both of these people have these, yeah, these flaws, these hot and colds to being just utterly human. Exactly. That's (laughs) what I was going to say. They have these flaws, which makes them real people. (laughs) It's so common to be having an argument with someone and them to be displaying or even yourself to be displaying immense maturity and the next sentence that you don't even need to fucking say but you just say it (laughs) is so immature and then it gets everything started back up again i loved it and i'm watching it i'm like why did you just say that but i'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on euphoria not necessarily every episode but she plays i that it that's a wild show that uh gets away with i mean it's it's crazy like it, it gets away with a lot but I heard her in an interview today saying that, I don't know if this is the case now, but when she was in that show for the first season, she had never tried drugs or alcohol. And again, I don't know if that's the way now, but I'm I'm saying her character is so fucked up in that show all the time that I don't, it makes me appreciate her so much that she is, if she's genuinely never impaired her brain in every way to be able to play it that effectively is kind of mind boggling. And I'm not saying like her character does heroin and fentanyl. I'm not saying an actor has to do that, but I don't know. It's just really impressive to never had a, a beer and yet know how to behave on fentanyl. It's kind of crazy. Acting, baby. Acting. There you go. <laughs> just like Vanessa Kirby has, you know, has never given birth, but does what she does in pieces of a woman. So I don't know. Calling it back again, doing it. Yeah, I was going to say, you're bringing it back to Kirby. (laughs) Yeah, let's move on to John David Washington. I have had a bit bit longer of a relationship with him as an actor. I've seen every episode of Ballers. I watched three seasons of that show before I saw a news article with him standing next to his dad and realized that's Denzel Washington's kid. And when you see them stand next to each other, you're like, oh, they look – I I just – I didn't get it on his own. I, I never made the connection. Um he was, of course, in Tenet in 2020, and that was a big tentpole summer blockbuster movie, and he was the star of it. And I had some issues with that film and his performance. We went into that a little bit on our Oscars Breakdown podcast, but this is – I'm just calling myself out here and talking about, you know, you've seen someone in one thing or two things and not – and think that 
that should seal the book on them. Mm-hmm. And that's not what I'm saying. I done with him. I'm not being that dramatic, but I'm telling you that I thought this performance was absolutely fucking breathtaking. Like I did not, this was the first time, here's what I'll say. This is the first time I've seen his father in him. And that's a really, really high compliment. If you are ever compared to Denzel Washington and it, he showed up that way pretty much the whole time in this movie. I saw this and before me was an actor of incredible power and range and specificity and talent that um, I, now I'm I'm such a huge fan. And, and I don't think that's a disrespectful thing because, I mean, you come around, you see something, you admit you're wrong, and here we are. Every time I sit down for a, a movie, whoever's directed it, whoever is starring in it, if I have seen something I haven't liked from them in the past, I'm like, okay, here... This is a clean slate. Here we go. We're starting over. I do not care who you are, what you've made. And I genuinely try to start every movie that way. And it was good to do that here because he just comes in with a a similar energy that he carries, but just what you call him earlier, a buffoon, I think. And he is. He's just like out there. That scene, the first time I saw that scene of him going outside and kicking at the grass and doing this, I'm like, "This this is like... Little over the top, little Buster Keatonery, but I went. Yeah, maybe I've thought about doing that. Maybe I have done that once or twice in the past. And then the scene has this amazing landing where he's just walking and he goes, "Fuck Malibu," and that's like, I am not an easy laugh in movies. I'm easy to to think something is very funny, and but I'll be like, "Oh shit, that was hilarious." But to make me laugh out loud, I was just. In stitches, watching this in my living room multiple times because of him and his comedic timing is something that I haven't seen from him. I haven't seen him really have the need to flex that. And he made me laugh a lot. That's there was that there was the wallet thing, which I thought was just (laughs) great. And every time I watch it, it's hysterical. There's his critique of him reading his film review. Like what he, you know, it opens with the steady cam and he's like, it's a dolly, you fucking idiot. I just, I love that so much. I know. I thought of you when I read that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, well, well, let's talk a little bit about the movement of this movie um, in terms of them, because I mean, it starts out with them entering the house and he's making himself drinks and walking around the couch, around the living room area with this giant speech about how the night went. You know, and one might not think much of that, but that's a one-track shot that just keeps going from side to side and through a window. And so when you're the actor, you realize that you've got a lot of space to play with. This is uncomfortable a lot of times for film actors because... They're not used to having to be big. They're not used to having to actually um, figure out business around a space for a long period of time. It's a very theater-trained thing that if you've done theater, that you kind of know what's up. And it's like this dude had to command over every step he took feeling the music, feeling the drink, feeling his confidence, feeling himself for having the night that he had. Oh, <laughs> baby. You know, like you can you feel it all through him and then juxtapose with Zendaya just calmly taking a cigarette. But just speaking to a little bit about the impressiveness of the physicality from the actors and how they carry themselves because as he's all loose like this, she is 
there's something going on. You can tell, and she's very still. And the power and stillness is just resonating with her. So as much as he's moving around her, her just standing behind the kitchen watching him, there's conflict already. Yes. Um, Because throughout this whole entire movie, every sequence that happens is staged and blocked so specifically and so freely for the actors to perform that that's why you can have a one hour and 45, 55 minute movie argument go and flow from high to low like it does without it feeling like that because everything was taken care of and crafted so well. I mean, you know, we're huge nerds about this stuff. And as someone who like, I like to shoot my own stuff. So I'm, so when I, when I focus on cinematography, that doesn't just mean you're like, oh, what camera or lenses or something did they use? It's, I'm also really paying attention to different stabilizers. So that's like, did they move the camera at all? Was it on, uh, not to quote him from the movie, but was it on this like flawless dolly? Was it handheld? Now, what is the point of using that technique versus that one versus that one in this given scene? And he uses a bunch of different techniques in this. He'll, you know, rush up to them, Marie, Marie, and then cut away. And then, so he'll get crazy. And Whenever a different technique is implored, it was always the right one, in my opinion. And I, who, I'm not saying this one way is right and every other way is wrong. It just felt correct to me. I'm like, I understand why they're making out and getting frisky here, why this is handheld and why the editing is overlapping. Like we're not seeing their words necessarily, and but we're hearing it because and then it cuts to them speaking. So all that playfulness, it just really fit and it gave me the sign of someone who really thought about what they were doing and really knows what they are doing because yeah and what's even in the writing Mm -hmm. is when he's talking about that authenticity scene and he's talking about what actually makes a film a film is like you just put a, a camera up and hit record that's a youtube video about the choices that you're making and none of it is about what's right and wrong it's about what do you want to do And I think that might be what some people have issue with with this movie is that so much of this is just because this was what Sam Levinson wanted to do. This is how he saw the scene yeah, in its technique and the way that it's actually being executed. It's fully uh, supporting his point of view with the way he's telling his story in that way, because all of this is executed on a very, very specific level that, you know, you were just talking about. You're like... I don't know if it's right. I don't know if it's wrong, but I like it. Mm-hmm. I, I see why they're doing it this way. It's connecting. And I agree. So, I mean, this is definitely a movie that's made for people like us in that way. Like, we're going to see everything it's doing and appreciate it. Exactly. And, you know, we hear the the lines are getting blurred more and more now. I mean, even in our top 10 of 2020, did for our number one pick, did we list a TV miniseries? Was it a film mini? I mean... Who knows? The basic difference between television and movies to me is that TV is mostly about information. We are giving you words. We're cutting different scenes a lot. We're going here. We're going here. We're keeping you invested, keeping you motivated. There's there's a lot of words being spoken. So maybe if you want to get on your phone for 30 to 60 seconds, you're not going to miss much. Movies and this movie is a good example. If you are on your phone and during those shots in the beginning of them walking around or in the end with all of those mirrors, if you just hop on your phone here because it's boring and you're just listening to a jazz song and watching two actors stare into a camera, you're going to have a very, very different thought about the movie before you got on your phone. I mean, this is true of every movie, of course, but, and then I think 
when that happens, maybe that frustrates people. That that this has been my running theory anyway. That this is why mm-hmm. binging three hours of a TV show is so much more popular now than watching an hour and forty five minute movie because you it requires a bit more focus and a bit more attention. And my whole TV information thing that doesn't apply to miniseries. Like I know this much is true is eight hours, and I guess that's technically TV, but that is played much more like an eight-hour film. And that that's why I'm saying the lines are so blurry. It's like who, I don't know, who knows. But in general, you can put on Survivor or The Office, shows I love, and dork around on your phone for a couple minutes and still get the main intention of it. You can't really do it with a movie like this and still get what's going on. So you can. that may be a reason why... It was up on Netflix's top 10 for a week and then it went away. I'm just, I'm just like Mank, Pieces of Woman. I understand why people, why that's hard because it's, it's a tough movie, but I'm getting more and more baffled by the fact that all of these streaming movies that I love, <laughs> the general public just doesn't seem to. I mean, The Irishman is another one where I was like, I still love that damn movie. And, and then the ones that do get the love are ones that I, you know, Maybe don't like as much, but I guess that's just the game now. I don't know, man. I think so. I think it is patience. Yeah. Um, and you're talking about how information is pretty much what rules TV. One thing that I thought might actually be the most impressive thing to me about this movie was that so much of the conversation is about this movie that we never see. Yep. The movie he made, the movie mm-hmm. Malcolm made is a movie that is at the front of the conversation between him and Zendaya. And without there being ridiculous, blasé exposition, by the end of this movie, we actually can put together for ourselves what this movie was that Malcolm made. We can actually understand who this person was that we never see that was cast, why Zendaya has a problem with it, what the movie's about, Mm-hmm. based on the way that he talks about how the critics speak about it. Everything's being told to you by a roundabout way of talking about the movie, not directly. So by doing it that way, we put together our own idea of what the fuck this movie was without him at any point being like, so I made a movie and it's about this and everything like that. And this A to B way of explaining things. We're going A to Z and the whole entire movie is revealing a little bit more around it because the heart of the issue is about something much deeper between these two characters. But we are finding out about the movie that Malcolm made in that way. And that's very, very hard to do that I just I had to bring that up because that's just such a such a fascinating and well done piece of this movie. The whole time, yes, absolutely 100% agree. The whole time they were talking about it. So I was wondering, am I going to get annoyed by all the discussion of this movie? And then at some point I settled into it. I'm like, "Oh, this is like The Heist and Reservoir Dogs." Mm-hmm. I like I love this. They're just talking about it and referencing it, and I know I know exactly that Mr. Blonde just jumped up there and started killing people. I mean, how young was that poor black girl? Like, you have a crystal clear idea of it. And yeah, this was the same way. I think the movie, I think the film's name is Amari, which is the lead character's name in it. It would be so cool if like that movie existed and we could see it. That's how real it felt. It really felt like, man, I'm going to pull up like the phone and go on Variety or something. There's going to be a review of this movie out there. (laughs) Not Malcolm and Marie, this Amari movie. It's just so cool. And um, as we kind of 
near the end here, just two things I really loved in the way of the script and the freedom of the actors to let them slur and stutter. He played drunk very well, very carefully. He never went over the top, but the murmuring, the stuttering, and she just kind of stuttered as one does in arguments or when recording a podcast. And then I just heard Sam Levinson mention this on a podcast, and I wanted to bring this up because I this is the most geeky thing to fully endorse. The reason why he put the credits in the beginning of this movie is that all these damn streaming services just cut out right away at the end. And they're like, <laughs> you know, the credit starts. You could be sitting in something. And I know I'm not the first person to bring this up. I think I've even heard Tarantino complain about this. But you can be sitting like in the wake of a movie and it's just ended and you like space off. And you turned around, it's done and like the office theme song is starting. And you're like, wait a minute, dude. Like, I'm just trying to just try to hang out here. And so he put them first to give credit to the people who deserve credit. And I really love that. It's a very old school thing to do. And anything that you can do, I love it for that reasoning. Because um, not even knowing that, I put together for myself, like, oh, cool. What I wonder why, why these credits are happening right here. And you see a lot of movies that do it that I've always found fascinating just because it's something you don't see. And I think I'm just more attracted nowadays to when something goes against the normal way of doing things. I'm immediately in. I'm like, I don't even care what your reason is. Box Lux. Right. Same deal. Like yep. they did. They they ran the whole entire credits climax by Gaspar Noe. I mean, when that, and that was great because when that movie ends and you don't and you're left with that impact, like <laughs> that just ends. It's like just, it's done. It just Boom. ends. Lights go on in the theater and you're like, oh, I have to sit here now with this. I'm a real credit snob. I heard um, I heard Steven Soderbergh reference the importance of fonts to James Cameron on the Solaris director's film commentary because that's like Helvetica. I mean, massive font in Solaris. And I remember seeing that at a young age and going, I mean, when you think about it, like there's just not that many different fonts in movies, like what whether we're talking about credits, uh, title cards, date stuff. So when someone puts a little more thought into that, I always love it. I always pay attention. Gaspar Noé and Soderbergh are probably two of my favorites. But even Malcolm Marie, the title card comes 13 minutes in, pretty much right when yeah. their argument is kicking off, like right when it starts. And it's just a little more thought, a little more attention put into it. And I love that. And can we talk about the macaroni and cheese? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's ten, that seems to be a scene that is pulled away and universally liked, which is nice. So at least, you know, people like something from it. <laughs> it it's true. And the reason why is because it's action revolving around something that's not actually a part of the conversation. Like, it's almost like, you know, the Hitchcock MacGuffin. It's the thing that everything's going around, but doesn't actually matter. And, but to her point, so when this movie finally ends and her whole entire point is just thank me for being me because I made you macaroni and cheese because you didn't thank me. Mm -hmm. it, it just like I love her character because when she's right, she's so right. Yeah. But the macaroni and cheese, I love that the title card comes on the macaroni and cheese. Like it's it's made such a big deal and it looks so good. It does. Like I, food on screen is like a whole entire thing. But you're also talking about production design, too. So you have any thoughts on the macaroni and cheese? Yeah, I just I thought I mean, macaroni and cheese has been making a good play lately. We have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Macaroni and cheese yeah. is not that it ever went anywhere, but it's making a good comeback for a lot of uh, <laughs> narrative, <laughs> narrative aspects of film. There's got to be another one there that I'm just forgetting. 
No, the main thing I have about that is the landing that it reaches with that line that she delivers because yeah. it's a nice, soft landing and some of the best points to make. Did you ever make a point in your life that you didn't yell out, that you just said it like calmly and it devastated the other person? And it's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting that it comes from a place of kindness. Like she made, she was kind to make him macaroni and cheese. You know, it was, yeah. it's the point that is made is that, yeah, love me for who I am. And maybe I'm a little fucking better than you're giving me credit for, buddy. And the specificity and the way that he eats it. Mm-hmm. it and for me, I kind of took it as... I need to eat this really fast before she comes back and catches me eating the food that she made because I know I'm being a bit of an asshole. Yeah. And then she comes in and she has the whole entire thing. Are you really going to like yell at me while you're eating? Because now he's just committed. They were both, they had times of great humor. And then um, that bathtub scene, holy shit. Oh. He was so, I, th- that's what I mean when I was watching that going, how is, how is she going to forgive him for this speech? And then that's kind of what kicks her into gear. So, and you know what I loved about that too, was like, that's such a man thing to do. You like by revealing all of this information that he is, he thinks that he's being so mean mm-hmm. and so cruel. And he's saying all of the possible things that he thinks would just break her and really yes they are hurtful they are mean but like when it finally comes back to it when she's just sort of like after everything you just said i just thought it was gross that you did that with that bitch (laughs) yeah right exactly and also how he can be so mean and then he turns the corner leaves the room comes back and all of that was to say how much he loves her this to go from hate to love it doesn't make sense. It's not normal. It's but that's how it is when you're in a fucking fight like that. Yeah. <laughs> rational thought and rational behavior is out the fucking window. This movie is just all about that. We love this movie. Obviously, loved everything about Obviously. it. Obviously. I really liked it the first time I saw it. I liked it way more the second time. And then I, I watched it yesterday for the second time. And then today for the third time. And today I just I really wanted to focus on the technical aspects of it. And it is all the technical aspects are there. The sound, the echoes of the dialogue, like it's all there. So I would just urge people to check this one out if you have already and it didn't work for you. Then we appreciate you listening. But I, I don't know if you were thinking like, uh, I've been thinking about it, wanting to revisit it. That's kind of where my head was at. Like, I wonder, I, th- I think there's a little bit more here to dig into. I, I would just urge people to do that because it's a lot of fun to unpack. There's a lot going on in it. So, yeah. And I would challenge anyone to who might not have seen it yet. If you don't like it, why? Mm-hmm. And ask yourself, really, are you not liking it because you're not comfortable with seeing two people? have an argument like this for about two hours? Are you just not comfortable with the content? Or are you not comfortable because of the controversy surrounding it? Really be honest with yourself because this is where we're at in art and film is so much of what goes into what we're seeing now is completely being ruled by outside thought and outside opinion and outside outside noise. So if you're watching this movie and you don't like it, Really, really ask yourself why and see where that takes you. Because I have a feeling with a movie like this, you'll learn a lot about yourself if you don't like something. Well said. It's a challenging piece. It's a very challenging piece. And we're going to move right into what are you watching? Recommend something. 
other than Malcolm and Marie, which is available for free on Netflix right now. Go check it out. Um, I'll go first today, and I'm going to recommend something uh, challenging more so, and that is Scenes from Marriage, which I've already referenced, made in 1973, directed by the great Ingmar Bergman. And this is a tough movie. It's very long. There are two versions of it. There's a 280-minute version that was made for Swedish television. They do things over there differently. TV <laughs> is better. They're allowed to pretty much air whatever they want. So I would recommend getting a hold of the – again, it's 280 minutes, but you know it's in five parts. And then there is a 167-minute theatrical version that premiered in the US. And both versions right now are available on Criterion on their app. So – you know, Jessica Chastain and Oscar Isaac, two friends who went to Juilliard together. They are reprising these roles. I cannot wait to see that. So in in preparation leading up to that, it'd be cool to sit down and watch the original, throw Malcolm Marie in there. You're going to have a well, you're just going to have a hell of a time. <laughs> yeah, hell of a time. Hell of a time. What about you? What do you have for us? So I'm going to go with um from the opening shot of this movie. Uh, it reminded me instantly of another movie that I think you could draw a lot of comparisons to uh, is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, directed Ooh. by the great Mike Nichols. One of my all-time favorites. And similarly, like there, like that whole entire movie kind of lives in the same world as Malcolm and Marie with this one-night, complex, human-driven fight. It's excellent. It's so well done. It's based on a play, one of the great um, play adaptations into a film there's a lot of like, you know, talk about Malcolm and Marie being like a play. And I love the ways that you can draw and connect those dots because so um, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Check that one out and have fun. One of my all time favorites, his first movie, Mike Nichols first movie. That's insane. I, I adore that movie. Yeah, a lot of similarities, black and white over one night. Like you said, a lot of uh, very complex gender dynamics going back and forth. So that's great. Thanks, everyone, for listening to our breakdown of Malcolm and Marie. It's our first stab at a contemporary movie. We really like this one. We really stand behind it. Let us know if you watch it. Let us know on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast because we really want to know what you think of it. So, as always, thanks for listening and happy watching. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Next Time is all about 1982 at the movies, a sneakily influential year for film, classics in so many different genres. Stay tuned. A really audacious move coming right off. I mean, I saw this just a few weeks after Pieces of April, which was one of the best movies I've seen. Pieces of a Woman. Oh, I said Piece of April. Shit, you're right. I've been saying that all the time. <laughs> it's a good movie. I mean, I see Malcolm. Yeah. <laughs>